Hello and welcome to the Virtually Teachers podcast, the podcast where five teachers from different contexts have been inspired by these strange times to come together in a roundtable format and discuss the big educational questions. My name is David Hibbert and I'm the head of history at a school in West Sussex. My name is Simon Davis and I'm a professional tutor at a school in Oxfordshire. Hello from me, Rachel Lewin, assistant head teacher on a small island. My name is Jacob Keats and I'm a teacher of history at um, an independent school in Sussex. And join us this week as we reflect on a crazy term in teaching. So at the end of the maddest term, we wanted to come together to reflect on what it's meant to us and what we've learned, as well as thanking our listeners for their support. Everyone's brought a reflection for discussion. I don't know yet whether these reflections will be positive or negative, happy or sad, but I know as always, they'll be worth listening to. So Jacob, what's your reflection or takeaway from this term? Well, as I've just been saying before we started recording, and I think people might uh, not like me for saying this, but I'm going to be positive and say this is the best term teaching I've ever had, actually. And it's made me really, really, really appreciate the job and just in, enjoy things. Um, at our school, we have lots of <coughs> traditional events at chapel services and other things students march into lunch each day etc and all those things have kind of gone by the wayside and as a result of all those peripheral things or well you might say peripheral but the, I suppose they're kind of central to what the school is what's happened is it's really helped me to enjoy teaching is the best part of the day and um, in, in a way it's also forced me to change the style of teaching which I was was trained in by the good old Oxford PGC program which I believe we've all been part of at one stage which is very much to do well not all the time but a lot to do with with students talking to each other being in groups etc all that's not been possible and I'm sure everyone listening to this will know what I'm on about here because of the, the COVID uh, reasons etc in the classroom of students not being able to move around what that's led to in the classroom for me has been a greater appreciation of storytelling and I think um, this uh, being a medievalist here I'm gonna I'm gonna name drop the Decameron because um, if you if you've heard of the Decameron before if you haven't heard of it sorry it was a it's a book written by an Italian Giovanni Boccaccio and he it's kind of like the Italian version of the Canterbury Tales actually he he writes about a group of um, Young, young adults, I think there's three or four young men and, and about seven or eight women who get together in Florence and during the Black Death and they kind of get together in this um, villa and they wait out the plague and they do so by telling stories to one another and the importance of stories that we share among ourselves in, just in society generally has become so important I think in this time where there's a lot of uncertainty and people do tend to believe the, the worst things which are out there because people people tend to react to, to to things and and be scared by them but telling stories in the classroom has had a really profound effect i think it's it, it, it's it's um particularly come up because i've been forced to do a lot more talking from the front which we're kind of which kind of the is the opposite of what we're all trained to do i suppose the whole chalk and talk thing and, and giving lectures and etc but um using stories in the classroom particularly um, to give you an example here with uh, year 11s when we've been doing Nazi Germany I've been using an excellent set of stories um, from the book Frauen and these have been um, um, made ready for teaching by the um, by the uh, professor Alison Kitson 
and I was introduced to these a couple of years ago at an IB conference and basically there's four stories about different women um, who were living in Nazi Germany and um, the students have to read them it's about a page of A4 each and then they have to go through and think about how um, how Nazi ideology affected their lives. And for example, there's one lady who stands out, she's called um, Frau Haferkamp, and she has about 10 children and she gets all the medals for having all the children that the Nazis offered. But then she also gave out uh, food to Jews and refugees and it gets, forces the children to think, you know, she's got all these medals and she's the, you might think she's the typical card carrying Nazi with all these children and all, and all the, the childbirth she's been having, um, which fits in with Nazi ideology perfectly. But on the other hand, she's been giving out food secretly and, and hiding people in her home and things like that, which perhaps we haven't had as much time to look at in, in the past, or perhaps I haven't given as much weight to have been really, really, um, really, really profound and had a, had a great effect on me I think as well as the students and I can say um, from the students perspective as well I think at least here having had them being at home for a long period of time in the summer and then um, of course again listeners will be aware lots of them have been at home for this term through periods of isolation as well students have been a lot more grateful to be in the classroom and a lot more respectful is perhaps the wrong word but appreciative I'd say of the live environment of learning and I think storytelling has really uh, manifested itself in that environment for me so that's my reflection. That's really really beautiful that's going to resonate very much with with my reflection as well which is quite a similar one but that's that's beautifully expressed thanks Jacob. Um, Simon what's your reflection? Um, so I've had quite an odd year so far in the sense that I'm not teaching much history anymore um, in my new job as professional tutor. I, my job this year has really involved working with staff, particularly new staff, and it's kind of brought home the importance of, you know, your job is who you work with at the end of the day and the relationships you have with your colleagues and helping really foster a sense of love of the job and also not taking the job too seriously. I think you know, I'm fortunate enough to work in a school now that's really been on a journey of improvement. And we're now at a point where we kind of know as a school what we're doing is is quite effective. And so it's easier for staff to do that. And it's just been a real joy to see new members of staff entering the profession, but also seeing them work hard, but not get stressed. And, you know, if I compare that to kind of the logic that sort of surrounded the advice that maybe we all had when we did our NQT years, which was you're going to work hard and it's going to be stressful and you're going to want to quit your job. You know, looking back on it now, that seems like such a nuts thing that we were like told. And I think some of us, I know I was actually told that by the professional tutors that I worked with when I was a new teacher. Um, and it's, it's great to, it's great to have seen the school that I work in kind of move away from that culture and that culture of sustainability really really ringing true and what has been such a difficult time for for so many staff i think up and down the country um but also from a teaching point of view this year you know i'm teaching lots of english i'm teaching a bit of food and nutrition um, and what i've actually found myself is you know to be an effective teacher in those subjects i've had to continue being a history teacher because the knowledge rich curriculum so much of the knowledge rich curriculum and the knowledge rich logic that surrounds different subjects comes down to knowing a history of whatever it is you're teaching because you want to really get across the context of the kids you know I, I certainly know that I wouldn't have been able to teach the Christmas Carol 
as well as I have done to my year sevens without really knowing the historical context of the novel, which kind of underpins all the themes of the book. Likewise, you know, teaching nutrition, we've spent a lot of time evaluating, you know, the principles of the eat well guide and, and, you know, the, the idea that you should only have five portions of fruit and vegetable a day, or, you know, the logic that, you know, it's okay to have lots of carbohydrate with your meal and being able to kind of talk about the historical debates about where that logic came from and now why it's been challenged and ultimately, um, ultimately kind of reviewed has, you know, brought a richness to that teaching, which has made me kind of double down and appreciate on why history education is so important and why it's so important for any of us and what we go on to do, whether we go on to be, you know, white collar workers, blue collar workers, teachers of history or teachers in a different subject, like literally any profession, being able to appreciate the background of what it is you're doing which I suppose is a transferable skill is what a good history education kind of delivers you. Um, you know, it's, it's made me appreciate like why that's so, so essential. So I guess teaching other subjects other than history is in a weird way, helped me get my mojo back for joining teaching history, which, you know, I felt a bit burnt out with <laughs> um, at the end of last academic year. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I completely echo that sentiment about staff as well. I've never felt more grateful um, for my colleagues. And on your note about early career teachers as well, we've had two NQTs with us this year in our department that have been absolutely incredible. I, I, I thrived in a way that I just admire tremendously given the circumstances. Couldn't agree more. Why do you think that is? Do you think they've kind of really risen to the challenge of, you know, being teachers in such a unique circumstance or is it something that your school particularly has done well? I think that there is a huge sense of mutual support in the school. So like something that I, my line manager told me last week, which I couldn't quite believe was that our staff absence has been considerably better this term than it was last year, uh, which is quite extraordinary really. And I think speaks to the fact that everyone wants to kind of be there for each other. And I think that's a big part of it is, especially moving around the school, there's a real culture of mutual support. Um, and also, I just think that they have a huge commitment to teaching and to history teaching. And then that's kind of manifested itself in this moment where we've needed to kind of be there for the kids and for each other more than ever. And yeah, I've been huge, hugely impressed and really quite moved by how, how brilliant they've been and how brilliant everyone's been, really. Um, Rachel, what's your reflection on the term? I agree. I think about um, new career teachers and so on. Uh, there have been actually as well so many more opportunities for them to connect to kind of wider departments and, and wider communications through education. Um, and that's been really exciting for the trainee teachers and the NQTs at our school as well. Um, and that was actually going to be my theme uh, for my reflection, which was thinking about connectedness in a time when so many of us are facing this holiday period in a really sadly disconnected state. Um, I myself, I'm feeling incredibly lucky to be on my tier one island with my husband and my children and my mother-in-law, who is the best mother-in-law in the world. She's also my history TA and I thought I'd give her a little shout out, so uh, happy Christmas to Granny Jenny. Um, but I'm, you know, feeling so much for my friends and family in Tier 4, uh, as well as all those who've been separated at the last minute from their loved ones. But for me, I think that a positive reflection on 2020 has been the new opportunities we've had for making connections and professional connections in particular. 
this podcast, Virtually Teachers, has been just one of the examples of the amazing new conversations I've had the good fortune to join over the year. Um, not, not only with you guys, but also with all the lovely people who've commented or picked up on our discussions on Twitter. Uh, and teaching on a three and a half mile long island, 28 mile, miles out into the Atlantic, separated by the long, slow journey through the long peninsula of the southwest by often wild seas. Professional isolation is a constant challenge for the teachers at our school. Um, but this year, my colleagues and I have been able to join virtual departments and attend conferences all over the country and the Twitterverse. Um, I've been able to get started on setting up a new historical association history teachers network for the Southwest with a group of teachers who are similarly aware of how kind of professional discourse and development has often seemed to tail off beyond London, Reading and Bristol. So another little shout out here, if you're listening from anywhere southwest of Wiltshire and Dorset, uh, look us up on HASW Network because we're really hoping to get some great speakers involved next year to link up with ITT <laughs> next year to link up with and to find new ways of sharing resources to connect our local curricula to the wider world. Um, but it is, it's those curricular connections that for me have been the most exciting thing this year. Uh, whether it's kind of through our discussions here or further afield at SHP, uh, the HA, the sort of curriculum masterclasses that have been available online, um, that the kind of theme of decolonization and global curriculum thinking, it's really burst into a new life of its own. And I thought, if I may, I'll share with you a short Christmas reading that encapsulates some small part of the global curriculum thinking I'm trying to engage with. It's from David Abelafia's Wolfson Prize-winning book, The Boundless Sea, which I've been reading in fits and starts, to be honest, through this kind of exhausting term. Um, but I saw a challenge tweeted out by Matt Stanford back in June saying, I think there should be a prize for the first department to turn it into a scheme of work that would take less than two years to teach. Um, I'm not very close to that prize yet, but somehow the idea of kind of taking this even bigger has really captured my imagination. We've got a constant motif running through our teaching of history on the Isles of Scilly about how so much of the history we learn has at some point washed up on our shores, whether it's at primary when the children have visits from the Viking Olaf Tryggvason, who was converted to Christianity in Scilly and comb the beaches for flotsam and jetsam of history, or in year seven, where we start with artifacts in our pop-up museums, such as Roman coins and shrine tokens from the uninhabited island of Nornor, or musket balls from a 1707 wreck, um, whether we sort of discovering about how the Armada was originally planned to rendezvous off the islands or visiting Civil War castles um, and introducing the transatlantic trade and enslaved people always with beads and manilas from the illegal slaver Douro that was wrecked off the islands. I, I really love the idea of kind of conceptualizing a whole history curriculum, uh, perhaps with the help of the OER World History Project that helps our children kind of sail from these local island links across a world of time and place and cultures. So I'm going to return to the Boundless Sea and here's my reading to bring it back to Christmas. Abelafia, he starts quoting, um, and when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they'd opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. He says, 
it's been seen that these three luxuries already shared their history 1,450 years before the birth of Jesus. About 15 years ago, a colleague at Cambridge was returning from a visit to the Middle East around Christmas time. When his luggage was inspected by British customs officials, they asked him what he'd bought, and he declared he'd been visiting Yemen and that his luggage contained frankincense and myrrh. And gold, as well, I suppose, came the ironic reply, and he was let through without further ado. These items were clearly the prestige products of the early trade routes to navigate down all or most of the Red Sea. On the other hand, preferences shifted. The Egyptians had a special interest in myrrh, though there were also great burners of incense. The Phoenicians and the Israelites were most interested in gold and had other sources for their incense. Competition between land and sea routes to South Arabia and the facing shores of Africa would last many centuries. It was not always clear what comparative advantage a sea route offered those seeking frankincense and myrrh. The Red Sea would only be used intensively when ships regularly sailed south beyond the fabled lands of Punt, Sheba and Ophir into the wide expanses of the ocean. And that would only happen when the attractions of the Indies and of the shores of Africa became clear. In other words, the Red Sea flourished not for itself, but as a passageway linking Egypt and beyond that the Mediterranean to Africa, India and even Malaya. For me, in reading this book, I've been really struck by the sort of golden threads across sea and immense sweeps of time, place and culture woven by these luxury goods. Frankincense somehow in particular, from China, Africa, India and right across the old and new worlds. And I thought perhaps it could be an idea that helps us think wherever and however we're spending our holiday about the ways in which the stories we tell as Jacob was saying, through our curriculum or through our diverse cultures can really help us in a lockdown time to connect beyond these shores. That's really beautiful, Rachel. Thank you. Um, I completely echo that. And I've been teaching to our year sevens a new scheme of work made by my brilliant colleague, Tom Cox on the Silk Roads, which has involved a big map of the ancient world. They've been drawing these lines of silk and conquest and Alexander and the Persians across this map. And there's sort of such a sense of awe in it. Uh, for them I think I've never quite seen before in, in year seven students absolutely I couldn't agree more so mine is going to be building on almost everyone's really um, tying it together and I've been thinking a lot to touch on one of the themes that we've discussed on the podcast about workload and about how to balance your working life with having the things outside of work which help you be a healthy person um, and that's something that we, we've discussed a lot and I've been quite open about um, but at the same time, along with ideas of essentialism, which John Thompson has talked about in putting staff first, of trying to do the things that are really essential and then find the space around those things to have a healthy work-life balance. I've realized that along with that idea, I just have to fiddle. I enjoy lesson planning so much. It's such a part of my kind of professional satisfaction and the joy I take from the job that I just have to fiddle. I think probably the biggest source of fiddling for me and something that I think has enhanced my teaching enormously, even in what's been a very busy and tricky term, is Mike Hill's ideas on um, world building, which he wrote up in Teaching History 180 very recently in an article called Curating the Imagined Past. And I think this for, for me has kind of clicked something, which is I've been struggling with really since I wrote my, um, second, my second assignment in my PGCE on Collingwood and historical imagination. And I've always enjoyed things like showing my students photographs from the place where we're learning or, or paintings we're learning about 
or playing the music or trying to kind of evoke a sense of um a sense of what it was like to be there but i think i've seen that as somehow indulgent or somehow not core or, or not kind of necessary something that i do to indulge my own love of something rather than really for the students i think what mike's thinking has done for me is it's kind of allowed me to see that that's not the case at all that actually what you're doing with those things they might not look like the core knowledge they have to know for an exam but it helps build a rich inner in a sense of the history that they're learning about and I'm quite astonished by the impact this has had especially with weimar germany which is the subject that Mike writes about in his article and the level of kind of understanding and fascination with Weimar Germany that Mike attends now have has contrasted quite sharply with, to be honest, I think the sense of dreary um, kind of trudge that it's like that my previous classes have had. And um, I just think it's such a rewarding, interesting and powerful way of thinking about history teaching. So shout out to Mike. Thank you very much for that. It's been a real kind of um, real kind of joy for me in this long and tricky term. So um, I thought we could also end with some festive recommendations, things for people to enjoy as they, as they rest through the Christmas period. So uh, Rachel, what's your festive recommendation? I'll kick off with a new Christmas soundtrack that's been uh, warming me up and bringing beauty to my wakeful small hours in the last few weeks of term. Um, it's by John Patrick Elliott, who's normally the lead singer-songwriter behind The Little Unsaid. And you can listen to it or buy it on Bandcamp, which is a great site for supporting independent musicians. Uh, John is self-avowedly not the sort of person to make a Christmas album, but he's made this really kind of gentle and beautiful, uh, he calls it an offer of a musical mince pie in the darkness, whatever your preferred flavour of spirituality. Uh, and I would really highly recommend it. And it's called December Songs, and I hope that some of you will listen to it. Sounds beautiful. Simon, what's your recommendation? I've just really enjoyed um, A Promised Land, the uh, memoir by uh, Barack Obama. Really, really well worth a read, particularly for those of you that have been uh, fully locked down <laughs> last minute at Christmas and <laughs> need to kill a few days. <laughs> you definitely chip through that, but um, a really, really enjoyable uh, presidential memoir. Fascinating. I need to make the time to read it. Jacob, what's your recommendation? Yeah, mine's another book, um, but uh, on the note of stories, I've just almost finished reading a fantastic story. It's called Any Human Heart. It's an epic by William Boyd. And William Boyd normally writes um, kind of spy type, thriller type fiction. But this is quite different, actually. It's a really, uh, it's a great book. It's written in kind of diary form, so you can easily dip in and out of it and um, read little chunks at a time. But Any Human Heart by William Boyd, recommended. Sounds great. Um, so I'm going to recommend actually a YouTube channel, uh, which is, I think, the, the YouTube uh, phenomenon, which seems to kind of have gripped so many of um, our students' lives, um, has kind of slightly passed me by. But there's this one YouTube channel I really love, and it links back, Jacob, to your discussion of storytelling and yours. Uh, reflections my, too Rachel is it my YouTube channel <laughs> it's not your YouTube channel although your YouTube channel is great and we will put it in the show notes uh, this is a YouTube channel by a, a man called Tom van der Linden and it's called like stories of old and he makes reflective video essays on media and storytelling and weaves in kind of sociology and philosophy um, and it's, it's really great stuff there's a lo lovely one on it's a wonderful life uh, which is very uplifting well worth a watch um, at Christmas time and he just yesterday put up a new one called who we really are when everything goes wrong which is a bit of a reflection on 2020 and he talks about how we really fundamentally as human beings want to help each other um, and he references in that video 
um, Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark, and he quotes from her. And I just thought I'd read this quote. So I think this rather gets at the heart of what teachers have done um, through the last term. So um, she says, hope in this sense is not a prize or a gift, but something you earn through study, through resisting the ease of despair and through digging tunnels, cutting windows, opening doors, or finding the people who do these things. They exist. That's a pretty good description, I think, of what teachers have done over the last term. Um, and on that note, just like to thank everybody um, who's listened to our podcast and engaged with it and, and spent time talking to us about it on Twitter. We wish you a very happy Christmas and a happy new year.